This morning's uh, scripture reading is found in the Old Testament book of Job. We'll take this morning chapter 19. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Job chapter 19, the entire chapter, that's verses 1 through 29. Job 19, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk about me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. This is God's word. As each act in a play contains the scenes that tell the story, so we're taking Job's story over seven Sundays, seven acts. Not that you would probably find a play that's seven acts long, but for um, sake of having a way to uh, put all this together, we're, we're looking at all the scenes in Job uh, in these uh, lump Acts, and today is Act 4. Job's story is not a story about suffering. Suffering is certainly front and center in the story, but Job's story is really a story about faith. Job's story is can a person continue to trust God when every benefit for doing so is stripped away? It's not a suffering story per se, though it is 
uh, a lot of suffering involved in it, but it's really a faith story. At heart, it's a story about faith that perseveres, that continues on trusting God, even when everything is lost. Now, remember, we um, last year looked at Jacob, another Old Testament figure who's prominent. Uh, Jacob doesn't have a book name for him like Job, but he's back there in, in Genesis, uh, probably lived uh, after Job's period, maybe was uh, a contemporary. I'm not suggesting he knew him, but lived around the same time. Uh, but Jacob is somebody who um, we looked at as um, somebody that God blessed and yet wounded. Maybe you remember when we looked at his story last year, Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, significant person in, in their history. Uh, he wrestled with, with God in that story. And, and from the wrestling match, he's given this, this limp, this pronounced limp for the rest of his life. But in the wrestling, uh, Jacob would not let go of God until God blessed him. By contrast, Job has no blessing to grasp hold of. His hands are full of losses, excruciating losses, and yet he still holds on to God. He holds on to his faith in God, which is why Job is more than just a study for us. Job staggers us. How could all of this happen to him and yet he remain faithful? We've been pondering this question for the last few Sundays and we continue doing so today here in chapter 19. A chapter where another dimension of suffering is apparent before us. And it's the dimension of loneliness. Job's loneliness is achingly visible. Your Bible's open to Job 19. Notice again these lines. Look at verse 5. You magnify yourselves against me, he says to his friends. You make disgrace uh, an argument against me. Look down at verse 13. He's put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, verse 14. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant. He gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I've loved turned against me. Incredible loneliness accompanied his suffering. I hardly ever give statistics. I don't have the Mark Twain view of statistics, but I just don't, I just don't rely on statistics to uh, make uh, uh, sermons, but there was a, a study by Cigna uh, Health Organization, Cigna Insurance or Health Organization, one of the two, uh, 2019, just last year, found that 61% of us, us being the American public, 61% of American adults consider ourselves lonely. That's 2019. And that's seven points up from the number the same study returned in 2018 and 2020 being what it's been, I think the number will only go up from there. A number of factors conspire to create the experience of loneliness. Job is chronically lonely here. 
But even with all of our connections, we've never felt lonelier. Sociologists will talk now about the lonely crowd and point out that how even though we are uh, overly connected, we know more about each other now than, than we ever really wanted to or were looking to, but that's how social media tends to work. But we, uh, with all of our connectedness, sociologists and psychologists say there's, there's actually a, a rise uh, in our loneliness. It's actually worsened. Because in the a connectedness, now we have all these occasions daily, numerous times through the day to compare ourselves to others, particularly in social media realms. And often in that comparison, the, 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 I, I don't feel like I measure up. But I bring up the modern epidemic of loneliness as we see it in, in Job in his ancient version of it because loneliness is front and center in this chapter and it's a dimension of suffering and it's a dimension of, of faithfulness that perseveres through suffering because um, loneliness often accompanies great suffering. It even accompanies great faith. Some of the most uh, faithful people, the, the saints of renown that we would uh, continue to honor their name uh, years after we're gone, people will still be honoring them, uh, were incredibly lonely people or had incredible seasons of, of loneliness that they had to go through. You, you learn this as you, as you read biographies and, and, and know the backstory of, of some of the heroes of the faith. Now, I mentioned in the first sermon in Job, just a few weeks ago, I told you that a lot of times when the Bible is open to Job and a preacher is, is talking about Job, that preachers will often say now, you know, it likely won't get as bad for you as it got for Job. And the law of averages being what it is, that's probably true, but I called that a few weeks ago a, a, a pointless point. Uh, because the point of looking at Job is not to compare our suffering and his, his suffering and ours. That's not where the comparison comes. The point in looking at Job is to consider how it is a person can continue to trust God. Will a person, will I continue to trust God if every human benefit for doing so was taken away from me? If I felt like God wasn't protecting me, if I felt like God was visiting things upon me that I, I didn't want, etc. But processing Job's lament here in chapter 19, the book of Job, it introduces us to him and to what happens to him in chapters 1 and 2, and then chapters 3 through 37 is Job interacting with these friends. And every time Job says something, it's a lament. It's grief finding its voice. It's hopelessness refusing to give up hope. It's faith seeking understanding. All these things that we've said before, lament is. And Job is giving these laments, and chapter 19 is just one of them. He's responding to these friends. And the final uh, section of the book that we'll spend a couple weeks with is God responding to Job and to the friends. And we'll look at that the final two Sundays of our study in this book. But processing Job's lament here in chapter 19 and plugging in the statistical averages that I mentioned in the, in the Cigna study just a few moments ago, 61% of American adults consider themselves lonely. 
more than a few of us feel like Job does, even if what's causing it for us isn't as intense as what caused it for Job. And note this, I mean, you do see as this plays out, Job is not alone in his loneliness. Three of his best friends are present. They're sitting with him in semicircle, I guess, uh, supposedly supposed to be sharing in his grief, but doing a lousy job. And we'll get into why they did such a lousy job specifically next week. Job is not alone, but he is lonely, terribly lonely. This is a dimension of suffering that this chapter in Job gives us a chance to think about and talk about and consider this morning. So how do we make sense of this? Let me give you two things as I usually do. What I want us to look at first is what loneliness is. Again, Job's loneliness is on display in this chapter, verses 13 to 19. It is where he just recounts uh, people in his life and, and they're all missing. Uh, friends, family, there's other lines throughout the chapter where you just, the loneliness comes through, this dimension of suffering. And so we want to look at this, make sense of this, how, how Job is not alone. He's got his friends with him, but he is lonely. How do we make sense of this? Well, first we want to understand what loneliness is. And then we're going to look at uh, what can be done about it. That's our two headings, two considerations, two takeaways today. What loneliness is, understanding it. And then what can be done about it? What can be done about loneliness? And, and when I say be done about it, I, I'm, I'm not offering you fixes. I, I don't have fixes to offer consult me about 20 years ago and I had fixes to offer you. I was, you know, young uh, pastor who knew everything and I could fix every problem. I used to think naively that any interpersonal problem, I actually thought this, any interpersonal problem, I can't believe I was on record saying this at one point uh, and writing this, that it could be solved over lunch. People just needed to get together and get face to face. Uh, yes, I was very foolish. So if you want fixes, you're going to have to go to the 31-year-old the uh, Cole Huffman because the 51-year-old Cole Huffman is out of fixes. But what the 51-year-old Cole Huffman has is some ways forward. <laughs> so I want, to, I want to point you in those directions. All right. So first, what loneliness is. And I'll give you two angles on this. So we got two takeaways, what loneliness is, what to do about it. And now in what loneliness is, two angles here. I, I want to tell you that loneliness is agony. We certainly see the agony in Job. But loneliness is also shame. Now it, it's not the kind of shame that we um, contrast with guilt. But there is a shame involved in loneliness. So that, that's where we're going to come at it from. I'm not suggesting that Job felt shame in his loneliness, but we do. And I'll, I'll give you why I think that. So what loneliness is, first, loneliness is agony, lamentable agony. I found years ago, I don't know where I found it, it was the perspective of a well-known theologian who said not all aloneness is the same, okay? Aloneness. Not all versions of being alone are the same. And this was a very helpful uh, distinction he, he gave. 
because some aloneness is good. Some aloneness is needed. Some aloneness is sought after. He called that solitude. And he said solitude is the glory of being alone. Solitude is the glory of being alone. Solitude is aloneness sought for. It's going out for a a long walk in the woods or booking a, a week in a mountain cabin to get away purposefully. Get away from the crush and pressure of responsibilities, the stress of life, the people that we're normally around. Sometimes we we need that break. We need to get away. And solitude is for doing that. It can be replenishing. It can be restoring. It can be rewarding. Solitude is a classic spiritual discipline. When you look at the the spiritual disciplines like fasting and and reading and... and, and, uh, uh, Sharing your faith, uh, all these things are, are disciplines. Uh, one of the classic spiritual disciplines is solitude. And, and the purpose for it is to pull away, to pray, to clear out space, to think, and to cease talking and opinionating, which we do endlessly in this country about everything. There's um, in solitude the glory of being alone. But then loneliness is the agony of being alone. That's how the theologian put it. Solitude is the glory of being alone, but loneliness is the agony of being alone. Because while solitude is sought for, loneliness is not. It's imposed, loneliness is. Now, I mean, some people may be responsible for imposing it on themselves, sure, if they're antisocial in some way. But for most of us, our experience with loneliness, for most of the people in this church who have family and friends and uh, social connections, for most of us, loneliness feels like it gets imposed upon us, like it, it comes in on us, it cuts in on us. Loneliness is not the mountain cabin. It's, it's feeling like you're a thousand miles from nowhere. That's actually a uh, country song by Dwight Yoakam, A Thousand Miles from Nowhere. I have been for years trying to find a way to get Dwight Yoakam into a sermon, and today is the day. Here we are. You know, I've got my sainthood of country artists that I like to quote to you. You got St. McGraw, you got St. Strait, and we got St. Yoakam. And then I have my beasthood of country artists, <laughs> all of which live on the Florida-Georgia line. Uh, you, have to quote, you have to quote from country songs. You have to quote from country songs when you're talking about loneliness. It is a rule, preaching rule. And a line from Dwight so- Yoakam's song is actually the title of this message. I've got bruises on my memory. I've got tear stains on my hands, and in the mirror there's a vision of what used to be a man. I'm a thousand miles from nowhere. Time don't matter to me because I'm a thousand miles from nowhere, and there's, there's no place I want to be. I got heartaches in my pocket. I got echoes in my head, and all that I keep hearing are the cruel, cruel things that you said. Bruises on my memory. It's a vivid way of putting it. Job feels like he's a thousand miles from nowhere. Even with his friends around him, they are close by. 
there, right in front of him, not socially distancing. But they're so far away at the same time from who he needed them to be in his pain, how he needed them to understand. They have in essence been saying cruel, cruel things to him. And so he says to them, verse 2 of chapter 19, how long will you torment me? How long will you break me in pieces with words? Whoever came up with the little nursery rhyme, sticks and stones will break my bones, words never was an idiot. Words break us apart. Words break us down. If you tried to tell me, well, it doesn't matter, you just, you're just using words. Well, words is what we have. And we do a lot of damage with our words. And as the chapter goes on here, particularly verses 13 to 19, which I've read twice this morning, there are bruises on Job's memory because he thinks about what home used to be like. He, he thinks about what public respect used to be like for him. Uh, there's another place in the, in the book where he says, uh, you know, uh, men that I would have not bothered to address now won't speak to me. He's just hit the lowest low point. And in Dwight Yoakam's words, in the mirror, there's a vision of what used to be a man. This is what he feels. Loneliness is agony. Loneliness is uh, also shame. Now, I'm, I'm thinking here of, of how some of us feel shame for feeling lonely, for confessing that we feel lonely. Because you look at our friend pool, you look at our family, you look at our life, we've got all these connections, and, and yet we say, you know, sometimes I, I feel kind of lonely. And we feel shame in acknowledging that. Like, what cause do I have to be lonely? It's, it's wrong for me to be lonely. Well, I'm here to tell you it's, it's possible to be even though you're well-connected. I know this firsthand. The discipline I have to practice when I'm in depression, and I know my triggers for depression are, are typically a, a flight mechanism. I just want to get away. I just want to avoid everybody. And so what I have to practice when I, when I feel it coming upon me is uh, what um, one writer calls faithful presence by which I mean staying near people, particularly people who I know can, can build me up and bear the burdens with me rather than giving myself permission to avoid them. But even as I do, um, I fight with loneliness. I, I do. This has just been something that, uh, and it's not because I'm looking out over an empty room today. You know, we got, got Chris and Ryan up there, so I'm not, I'm not totally alone not fighting loneliness right now, but I do fight it. And I look back uh, at where it started in college, I think, and, uh, and I just remember. And, and I can see that this has been something that I've had to contend with uh, throughout my life, though I have friends, good friends. I'm not friend poor. I'm not looking for, for more or new. I've, I've got great friends. I've got family. Uh, we, we've got uh, good family, but, but I have also at times throughout my life felt, and up to now, still feel haunted at times by a sense of loneliness. Can't describe it. I guess I can. I, I, can't, I guess what I'm trying to say is I can't necessarily tell you where it comes from. Just know it's there. I was talking with a friend 
Recently, we were talking about just depression and, and how we both uh, have to navigate it. And, and I, I was uh, telling that friend, you know, I, I think for some of us, it just becomes part of life. It's not necessarily there's any one thing that's happened, one thing I can point to over here, or yeah, that happened. And so that, sometimes it's just there. It's just part of our makeup. And we can do things to manage it and, and fight it and, and deal with it. But I've been haunted by a sense of loneliness throughout my life. And even though I've been well-connected, uh, I mean, my, my son asked me, uh, my youngest son asked me the other day, you know, what, were you popular in high school? And I said, yeah, I actually was. I was, I was one of the cool kids. But I can remember feeling it even then. Uh, and it's just something that some of us have to walk through. It, it, and, and, and then I came into this vocation which uh, one of the occupational hazards uh, of, um, of ministry, uh, though again, I think it's just part of my nature, but leadership of a church certainly has loneliness uh, attached to it. Uh, even when you're well-connected to your church, I'm not complaining. It's just, it's just the reality. I'm just telling you. I'm using myself as an example. Why not? But still, uh, even when you're well-connected or you've been many years in a church as I have been now, I mean, 17 years here, that's, um, that, that's a, that busts the pastoral average. You don't, you don't find a lot of that. Not, I'm not boasting in that. Y'all have put up with me for 17 years. I'm thankful. But, you know, when you, you spend a long time, you get connected, you, you find out who you're close to, and, and, and we've... we've uh, We've done that, and, and still there are times, though, that people disconnect from you and, and resist what you're doing. That's just standard practice. Again, I'm not complaining. There are times uh, I want to get away from me, too. <laughs> you know? I, one of the, my favorite Twitter bios uh, was a guy who, whose uh, line on his biography was, I would unfollow myself if I could. <laughs> I understand that. Uh, but it's not self-hatred. I mean, maybe a few years ago it was. I've, I've learned now it's just okay. It's just, I, I love how St. Saint, Saint Francis of Assisi called himself Brother Ass. <laughs> it's great. That's one of the all-time best. He just, you know, this, this guy was pouring himself out all the time. But he said, you know, I, I live with this person that uh, at times is disappointing as much as other people can be disappointing to you at times, you're really disappointing yourself. And Brother, uh, uh, brother Ass was who St. Francis of Assisi referred to that person as himself. I still feel shame for feeling loneliness when I do. And like I'm wrong to feel that. I shouldn't feel that. I've got friends. I've got a phone full of numbers. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm on staff at a church. I, I've got people. And I get to them and I get with them. And I'm not talking about shame distinguished from guilt. Let me just for a second here, let's take this as a parenthetical comment. Uh, shame and guilt often come together. We're not talking about that with the shame tied to loneliness. Uh, just to dis further distinguish it. Uh, guilt, when you're talking about there's shame and guilt, guilt is tied to an event. I did that, it was wrong, I shouldn't have, and I, f I feel guilty, I am guilty. And then uh, when God makes us righteous in Christ, the beauty of the gospel is he covers 
our guilt, that's justification. That's a word that gets used in the New Testament often to harness uh, Jesus doing for us what he did. That is taking our unrighteousness upon himself, taking our self-righteousness into himself and, and canceling the penalty of all that and giving us, covering us with his righteousness so that even though we are guilty before God, we're not treated as if we're guilty. That's justification. And then sanctification is growing in Christ from that point, enjoying all the spiritual blessings that we get in Christ. But guilt is point in time. It's tied to an event. Shame is tied to the person. It's tied to uh, the one who did the wrong. One writer put it this way, said guilt is the wound, self-inflicted. Shame is the scar. Shame is my memory of my guilt, my knowledge of my guiltiness ongoing, that I still grapple and wrestle with the nature of sin alive and well in me. But Christ is there through his spirit, overcoming overpowering. The penalty has been canceled out. The power of sin is being weakened as I grow in Christ's likeness. But shame tied to loneliness is not the same thing as shame tied to guilt for something I did wrong. Because shame as it comes out of loneliness is a different kind of scar. No sin has brought on my loneliness. In fact, chemical imbalance can bring on loneliness or just circumstances of life Certain news reports and things you see, they're just depressing. Uh, just like for Job, no sin brought on his suffering. No sin brought on his loneliness. No sin brings on mine. I mean, it can, but the times I experience it, it's, it's generally not tied to that. It's just tied to me. I'm just saying that we feel shame for feeling lonely, a lot of us, because we think, well, I should be the last person who feels lonely because I've got all these friends and this family and all this great stuff, and yet you still will, you still do. Despite all the good and connectedness in our lives. Now, let's pivot. What can be done about it? The second consideration of two this morning. What loneliness is, it's our first consideration. Loneliness is agony. Loneliness is shame. Not the shame of guilt. Guilt is about something I did wrong. Loneliness doesn't necessarily come out of that. But there still is, can be this shame when I feel lonely because I've got all this good people, good stuff. And why would I feel that? And I feel worse for feeling lonely. But, but I do feel it. So what is loneliness? What loneliness is was our first consideration. And now the second, what can be done about it? Don't be one of Job's friends vending simple solutions to complex states of being for people. Loneliness is a complex state of being. Uh, some of us likely believe if this person feels lonely, it's because there's some deficiency in community. They don't have enough community. They have anemic community. That's why you're lonely. You haven't done enough work in friendship. You need to do more. That may be, you know, for some, but for a lot of us, no. That, that, doesn't, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't have the ring of truth. I remember years ago, 
many, I guess it's about been 20 years ago uh, when I was with Fellowship, uh, the Fellowship Network of Churches helped start a fellowship church over in Murfreesboro. And I remember we, we went to a little retreat and a lot of fellowship pastors were there from all over. And I remember one of them, you know, had gotten all supercharged up on community and saying to the group, if you're going to be lonely in the pastor, it's because you won't have sufficient community. And to be fair to him, he was trying to challenge a prevalent ministry model, a fellowship network of churches teamed you with people. You had a partner. Together is better. That was one of our, our mottos, one of our mantras. But um, he was trying to challenge this prevalent ministry model that, that you just sort of gather. It just, it, it just sort of lands on you that, that basically the, the pastor relates to the congregation like an eagle. You know, the eagle is the independent aloft swirling overhead you know you don't really ever necessarily get down into the to the pews and and be known and and be vulnerable and things like that and he was trying to challenge that but it came out as the more I've thought about it just came out as this as this kind of fix-all and I don't think it necessarily uh, applies like that I mean community is really not a fix-all it can still fail it does fail I mean, look at the New Testament, all the exhortations. There's about 25 one another's that are repeated hundreds of times throughout the New Testament. If you organize, you know, love one another, be patient with one another, forgive one another. There's about 25 of those. Confess your sins to one another. All these one another lines, but then they're repeated hundreds of times. And so there's all this one another instruction. And, and the reason it's repeated over and over again is because community is not fail-proof. Um, in fact, good community with others, the deeper you go with a, with a group of people, you will get involved in their issues of life sooner or later. And they with you, and, and you may have to share their burdens, and you may not want to. There's no simple solution for loneliness by just get community. That's what you need. Though community matters, absolutely it does. Friendships are vital to our faith. It's important that life be shared and that faith be shared, which is why the New Testament over and over again turns us in to one another. It's, it's true what evangelicals teach and write about our being made for relationship. All that is deeply true. Even God is not alone he is a triunity of Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one being. So community is vital. Don't hear me saying any less. If the church doesn't fully understand how vital it is, go watch the recovery community. Because they've seen how vital it is. But community also changes. That's why it's not a fix-all. That's why it's not a simple solution. I've watched through the years, I've watched groups of friends that I did not think would ever fall apart or would drift away from one another. I've watched them do so. It's been painful. I thought the community they had with one another and they thought the community they had with one another was uh, fail-proof and, and, and then it failed. 
some friendships don't last. Some friendships do last, but they change. Now, some friendships, uh, you know, last for a season. Some friendships last for life. Some friendships fade over time. Some friendships don't. Hopefully, none of yours have. Hopefully, you're one of the lucky ones. All right? We'll, we'll invoke luck in that context. But I think if you live long enough and you experience life long enough, you're going to be disappointed in friendship. And that doesn't mean that you move away from friends and that you take this sort of just Jesus and me kind of approach to life, which is, which is not anything Jesus calls you to. But some friendships, all of the above, when friendship fails, when community falters, it creates loneliness. Uh, leaves loneliness in its wake. See, I, when you look at Job, I don't think... Now, this is speculative, and I don't, be very careful where you speculate in Scripture, but okay, I'm already out on that branch. I don't, I don't believe, I would not anticipate that these three friends and Job remained so after all this was said and done. It just seems like they hurt him too deeply. Although God will call Job to pray for them, and Job will I think do so given his nature and his character that we've seen in this book. But what do we do about loneliness? Given all these realities, I have no fix for you. But as a way forward, given the ebbs and flows of community, that community, while important, is not a fix and it can still falter, and given the ebbs and flows in our own person, my own person, uh, when I feel lonely and, and feel uh, shame for that, what I've had to learn to do, the only way forward that I really know, is to learn to put my ultimate confidence in what Jesus thinks about me. That's my way forward. To learn over time. This is learned by Scripture. It's learned by the impression of God's Spirit in our experience. It's learned from God's people. It's learned from navigating disappointments. But to learn over time to put my ultimate confidence in what Jesus thinks about me. That's the way forward. Now, I still need friends. You still need friends. We still need community. Don't hear me super spiritualizing this. I am as far away from it's just Jesus and me as you're going to find any preacher. It's Jesus and me and the church, his people, and the world, people who yet might become his people, etc., until his kingdom comes with authority in the end. It's, it's not what Florida Georgia Line says, Okay. God, your mama, and me. All right, it's Mother's Day. I had to throw that in. In fact, I brought the lyrics with me. Florida Georgia Line, God, your mama, and me, featuring the Backstreet Boys. Never going to run dry, never going to come up empty. Now until the day I die, unconditionally, you know I'm always going to be here for you. No one's ever going to love you more than God, your mama, and me. God, your mama, and me, unconditionally. God, your mama, and me. Happy Mother's Day from...
Florida Georgia Line and the Backstreet Boys and Dwight Yoakam and Tim McGraw, who has a much better Mother's Day song if you're looking for it, I Called Mama. Get it. It's fantastic. The sentiment doesn't hold up on its own, okay? It's a, hey, I get what the guys in that band are doing. They're affirming their relationship with their wives and they're saying, nobody's gonna love you more than God, your mama, and me. We all get it, okay? We're Southerners. God, your mama, me, apple pie, it's all there. But the sentiment doesn't hold up in its own. Because as much as I know my mama in Savannah, Georgia loves me and is proud of me, and as much as I know the mother of my children, Lynn Simpson Huffman, loves me, the only person who loves me unconditionally is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one. And why is that? Because he came in fulfillment of Job's hope. Look at it, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. What is he saying? I, I have hope that I'm going to be vindicated. That if God is a just God, and I believe he is, then he's going to take his stand on the earth, verse 25. And verse 26, after my skin has been destroyed and in my flesh, I shall see God. In other words, God can't let this go. It, the stuff that I'm going through is unjust. I know it in my bones. And if God is just, and I believe he is, then he's going to see my life to the end. He's not going to discard me as my friends are doing right now. He's not going to abandon me as, as my, my family has done. My, my brothers and sisters won't even talk to me right now. God is going to be there. That's what he's saying, verses 25 and 27. But he ends verse 27 with, my, my heart faints within me. In other words, I have hope, but it's still hard. This is the hardest thing I've ever gone through, he's saying to his friends. And yet, I know the goodness of God is such that there must be vindication for me ultimately. If God is just, and Job persists to believe God is, though he cannot make sense of what's happened to him, doesn't understand why God would allow it, nevertheless, which becomes an important word in persevering faith, nevertheless, God is just. Though he slay me, chapter 13, verse 15, yet I will put my hope in him, but I will argue my ways to his face. We get the both and. Job believes God is just. And that means Job believes that God will reconcile all things that are unjust and wrong up against his righteousness. If God is just, he will put all things wrong right. But until he does, life's going to be hard. It's not going to be all hard all the time, but it's going to have its difficulties. It's going to have its sufferings. This side of the cross as well. We're just closer to the ultimate redemption of the renewed creation that we talked about in Revelation. We're just closer, a few thousand years closer to it than Job was. But until he does, until he takes his stand upon the earth again, as verse 25 puts it, until he does, 
loneliness may last for us. And when you think it's past, you find it boomeranging back again. But we know this. We know that Job's hope became reality. Our Redeemer lives. Job knew it had to be. We know it is. He took his stand upon the earth, verse 25, and will do so again when he returns to put everything right. Do you know what it means when he puts everything right? It means he chases everything out of his renewed creation that doesn't belong there, including loneliness. It's gone when he makes everything right. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, the question it asks, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the answer the Heidelberg Catechism gives is, in all distress and persecution, with lifted head, I confidently await the judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Job could only hope for that. And he did hope for it. He hoped for what you and I have experienced in the unconditional grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who will never leave us or forsake us, who will stick closer to us than family. Man, I wish I could feel that, Cole. Somebody's thinking, I wish I felt that. You know, I don't feel it all the time. But I do believe it all the time. Even in loneliness. In fact, I've found that loneliness, if there's any way that God uses it, and I think he does in more ways than I can dial into, but in one way I have been able to dial into, loneliness is a great time to review your core beliefs. What do I really think God is doing in this world, in my world? The only fix I have for loneliness ultimately is not a fix. Seek out friends, build community, fight for joy, all of the above. Practice faithful presence. Don't run and hide from people. Find people you can confess uh, your, your, your worst to and they love you still. Work at that. Yes, work at it. You got to have it. But ultimately, I don't have a fix to go to. What I have is a redeemer who took his stand upon the earth as Job intimated, knew that he would, had an inkling, saw it in the distance. Maybe it's a prophecy. I don't know. But Job knew if God is who I think he is, then God has to make everything right. He has to make this wrong right. And God does in the person of his son. Christ is risen. Christ is returning. We know that our Redeemer lives. And we know that he is for us as no one else can be. Let's pray together and we'll sing. Father, thank you for the accomplishment of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you that you have given us such that we cannot repay. Thank you for your ongoing kindness to us. Thank you for how you use even low times and dispiriting times to bring us uh, back in uh, to all that you have for us in Jesus. And to make that even more real to us. We don't understand, Lord, how it all fits together, how it all works together, but we, we, we recognize biblically that it's not so much that 
we claim promises. It's that promises claim us. And the promise of a redeemer. And Job said, I know that my redeemer lives and he'll take his stand upon the earth. That promise has claimed us by name. In the person of Jesus Christ. Who calls us by name to himself. So that we can be his. We thank you for this promise. We thank you for this hope. We thank you for your goodness and your care for us. In Christ's name, amen.